Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author or authors of that book. This week, we're very pleased to have Mark Bradley and Marilyn Young on the show, and we'll be talking about their new book, Making Sense of the Vietnam Wars, Local, National, and Transnational Perspectives. This is the second in a series of podcasts that we're doing in conjunction with the National History Center about their series, Reinterpreting History. This is a terrific collection of essays about the Vietnam War, and I highly recommend that you uh, go out and buy it and read the essays. If you think the Vietnam War can be reduced to a simple set of statements about how we might have won the Vietnam War or lost the Vietnam War, then these essays will be eye-opening for you because what they show is that, like many historical events, the Vietnam War was extraordinarily complex. There are also lessons to be learned here about what's going on in Afghanistan and Iraq. So go out and buy the book. I enjoyed talking to Mark and Marilyn today. And without further ado, here is the interview. Hi, Mark and Marilyn. Hi. Hi. I should tell our listeners that we have Mark Bradley on the show today and Marilyn Young. And we'll be talking about a book that they've edited, a book that I uh, read with great interest, actually, uh, over the last few days called Making Sense of the Vietnam Wars. Uh, local, National, and Transnational Perspectives. Um, it is one in a series of books that has been put out by Oxford University Press and the National History Center called Reinterpreting History, and Reinterpret History It Does. The topic is terrific, both um, from a historical point of view, uh, because it's a very complex event, and, and also, I should say, from a contemporary point of view, because clearly the things that the authors of the pieces in the book discuss are uh, very timely and relevant to what's going on in um, the world today and particularly in the uh, Near East. So it's a very timely book, and I I very much encourage you to uh, go read it. Um, So, uh, Mark, why don't you begin by uh, telling us just a little bit about yourself. Mark's been on the show before talking about uh, another book that he wrote about Vietnam, but just a few words about yourself, please. Um, well, Vietnam is a, a subject that I've been working on now, I guess, for 15 years or so, um, and wrote a book about the sort of origins of American involvement in the war going back as early as the 1920s and into the early 1950s. And it was a book that tried to use uh, Vietnamese as well as American sources in trying to come to terms with the way in which multiple actors on both sides were looking at one another. And although my work more recently has moved in a kind of global human rights direction, I remain keenly interested in Vietnam. And as you said, particularly the contemporary resonances of uh, the history of the war, which one, at least from my perspective, finds more and more disturbing as we move deeper and deeper into the Middle East. Yeah, you do get a kind of sense of deja vu. We'll come and talk about this, but I, I, you know, just the agonizing over whether to send more troops to Afghanistan recently, I'm old enough to to say that I've, I think I've heard this before. <laughs> Mar- Marilyn, could you tell us a few words about yourself? 
Um, starting when? It seems to me that I've grown up in American wars. I hadn't really thought of it that way until recently I began to reflect on the way the United States seems to be involved in a condition of permanent war. But I grew up um, as, uh, let's say, I was eight years old or so when World War II ended and had a, a hero uncle, Bombardier, whom I worshipped, um, and romanticized that war extensively until he got back from the war and I asked him to tell me a war story. And he said, with a kind of anger that he'd never displayed, I mean, I was his favorite niece, um, I'll tell you a war story. The navigator's head gets shot off coming back from a mission and it rolls around the cabin all the way back to base. That's a war story and never ask me again. Yeah. And I didn't. Mm -hmm. And the next war of my life was the Korean War, which I remember watching the retreat through the winter snow of the American forces after the Chinese came in. And my father, who worked for the post office, telling me that um, in, he worked the night shift. In the middle of the night, trains would come with flag-draped coffins. And he said they always came at night so that the people couldn't get a sense of just how many American soldiers were dying, or at least that was his understanding. Mm -hmm. And when I was in graduate school, I found very appealing, also I had no money, but uh, there was a marvelous program that I learned later was financed by Dorothy Borg, an historian, but before that a journalist, who was convinced that the terrible um, enmity between the United States and China was based on an utter lack of understanding on the American side of Chinese history, and she therefore funded, for as long as it took you, uh, a small group of students to learn Chinese and to study foreign policy from both sides. It was a very early expression of what is now commonly called the internationalization of American history, or looking at America in the world and and the world instead of just from an American-centered position. Mm -hmm. So I studied Chinese, and I wrote about early American policy towards China in the 1890s to the early 20th century. And by the time my dissertation was out, revised, and published, we were smack in the middle of the Vietnam War, which absorbed the next 15 years of my life, and in some ways still does, since the segue from Vietnam through all of the wars since 1975 seems to me pretty clear. That's mm -hmm, mm -hmm. an interesting uh, story you tell about uh, your uncle, I guess it was. Yeah, my, as mm -hmm. Mark knows, I, I talked about this a little bit when uh, we had our talk a couple of months ago. My uncle was a, a, a bomber and fighter pilot in um, Vietnam, and uh, he didn't, uh, no, he wouldn't tell war stories. He, mm -hmm. he just wouldn't do it. No, he, uh, he would come home and... Um, he just didn't really want to talk about what went on over there, and uh, yeah. and uh, he was, uh, yeah, he came back kind of a different person. I know it's a cliche, but uh, he, uh, yeah. No, that was uh, true of my uncle as yeah, well. It, it made a profound impact on him. Um, yeah. In any event, why don't you, um, one of you, I, I won't, I won't say which. Why don't uh, tell us about the origins of this book? Uh, how, how did you come to uh, edit uh, the book, and how did you collect the historians who contributed? Marilyn asked me to join in on the project. Oh, She's got to do the genealogies, I think. Oh. Yeah, the, the, the genealogy was, I, God, I can't even remember now how 
Roger Lewis, I think it was Roger Lewis, who is the founder of the National History Center. Yeah. And with uh, Susan Ferber and the AHA had decided on this fascinating project of having um, a session at the AHA, which would be a kind of prolegomenon for a volume on the particular subject. And he asked me, I think that's how it happened. I was asked to do the one on Vietnam. And it happened to coincide with a time when I got rather ill and couldn't do it on my own. And uh, anyhow, it was a much better idea to have a younger scholar and one who has competence in Vietnamese uh, to join me in this effort. And Mark very kindly did. And um, then, if I may say so, proceeded to carry the burden of the volume, uh, certainly of the session and then later of the volume, to, uh, to completion and publication. And throughout, we talked over whom we would invite, and um, uh, not everybody who came to the AHA, I don't believe, is in the volume, and many people who were not at the AHA are in the volume. Well, the, uh, the essays themselves, I should tell people, are uh, varied in, in various ways. Um, there are many kinds of many different things. I mean, one of the things that I found fascinating is there are um, representatives of what I would call the old guard uh, who write essays, and then there are uh, much younger people who write very different sorts of essays. So it, it's, a, it's an eclectic mix of, of many different perspectives, and we'll talk about um, all of them uh, in due time. But let me ask you, this. Uh, in the introductory uh, essay, um, you talk about the Cold War consensus and its problems. Can one of you tackle that issue? Go ahead. Well, I I just, that, I've just been speaking. This is me. I think, you know, this also speaks to how it was we constructed the volume and who we wanted to enter into it. I mean, you know, the the simple way, I guess, of thinking about the war was that it, it was the Cold War. The Cold War made us do it, in a sense. And, you know, that's, I think, been the prevailing, at least quick, interpretation for why it was the, the United States gets drawn into Vietnam. And so I, I think the volume, in a way, pivots around the fact that that explanation, in many ways, no longer has the power to instruct. And... How does one begin to think about the relationship between that larger Cold War consensus and individual decisions that are made in Vietnam when it appears, and we'll, we'll talk, I guess, as we move through some of the essays, that there were moments where that alleged consensus seemed very loose and possible to move in other directions, and yet the decision by the American state is not to. So on the American side, there's clearly more to the story than the Cold War. And I think fundamentally that there's more to the story as a Vietnamese story or as a story of the transnational history of decolonization um, that simply isn't reflected in, again, what had been an emphasis on largely American sources and American decision-making. What's interesting about the volume, though, is that it doesn't break young, old, senior, junior necessarily on some of these questions. Um, we were very intent on having people like David Elliott, for instance, who's a very distinguished senior scholar of Vietnam, who has been working on these kinds of issues for decades. More recently, there's a younger cohort of people who are particularly concerned with these kinds of issues, and we've got representative samples of some of the best of that work as well. But I th again, I think it's important to talk about there was a prevailing consensus, and yet there were always outliers working in the field in what were more generative and productive sorts of ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Marilyn, any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I agree with that. And there, um, there's on significant issues, there's no consensus. I mean, we represent, um, in some ways, a, uh, a conversation that's going on right now in terms of decisions about Afghanistan. But we included both um, Gareth Porter, whose explanation of the Vietnam War has a great deal to do with the power of a particular national security bureaucracy, and then a um, an essay by Fred Langevin, which takes a quite different position and disputes the place from which Gary, Gary um, interprets the data. And they're both using the same material, so or pretty much. So part of what's of interest to me is the way in which historians can interpret the same documents in very, very different ways and put together different narratives, different interpretive analytic narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is that the younger scholars are often marked by language competence, mm-hmm. and therefore they're doing an entirely different sort of research from what I could do. Um, and that isn't actually younger or older because David Elliott is, is part of, I suppose, a, an originating generation of Vietnam scholarship. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he his language is is superb, but Elliot aside, um, the others um, because they have language are looking at different aspects of the war from the ones that are familiar to the first generation of people writing about it. Uh, Sophie Quinn Judge, for example, writes a really brilliant essay that's about uh, internal decisions in the Vietnamese Communist Party from 1945 to 1975. It's a kind of view from inside that was simply unavailable before. Mm-hmm. And you had a kind of, of um, sclerotic Cold War uh, scholarship that um, looked at such party documents, published party documents as was, as available, or simply projected their own ideas of the ways in which communist countries made policy. But what Sophie does is to go inside and say, okay, we know these were the disputes, and let's try and understand the nature of those disputes and their meaning. Ed Miller, who also has Vietnamese, uh, says, let's look more closely at Diem, not just uh, sink or swim with no Dinh Diem, which is the way he had been thought of earlier, and as a rather uninteresting, tubby little uh, Catholic Mandarin, but let's look at the social composition of his administration, what was going on inside, um, and uh, what indeed the Saigon government amounted to uh, as an actual entity. Um, David Hunt is a very different, so he's a French historian originally, whose life was turned around by the Vietnam War, and having published a book in, about uh, the French uh, peasantry, began to look very closely at what he could understand of Vietnam as a peasant uprising, as a peasant revolution, a rural revolution. And he, during the war, there was a double issue of the um, journal Monthly Review, and David published what was then the first thing available to any of us on on a village-level account of the insurgency, the revolution, really, in, in uh, the southern part of Vietnam. Uh, which added to a few other things that were available, uh, began to give a picture of what the resistance to the United States and the Saigon government was like. David, since then, has been spending, has devoted himself to reading the RAND evaluation studies of hamlets in Vietnam and has written what I think is a very, very acute essay 
about the nature of uh, the revolution in the villages in Vietnam. Mark, do you want to talk about some of the others? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, to, to pick up a little bit on what Marilyn is saying, I, the, there's been a real move in, I mean, there's a kind of bifurcation or a trifurcation, or, I mean, I don't know how many sides are involved in this, <laughs> in, in, you know, what, what historians are now turning their attention to the war, and certainly, you know, American historians have for a long time. Historians of Vietnam, oddly enough, have been somewhat reticent, it's really work on the post-1945 period. And so some of the people that we have in the volume, you know, are unusual in a kind of Vietnamese history or Vietnamese studies context in sorting out the war. Um, and certainly David's work is uh, another person who is in the volume, uh, Hanit Kwan, is just a brilliant uh, anthropologist um, who works both on Korea and on Vietnam, and the essay in our volume is from sustained field work that he did in central Vietnam several years ago. And it's both ethnographic, but it's trying to think in larger ways about how we might make some sense of the, the bigger meanings of the war. So what Hanek does in, in this particular essay is Talk about the fact that if you're living on the ground in central Vietnam, which would have been an area that would have been part of the South Vietnamese state during the war, that the situation looked a lot more complicated to individual actors than it might have looked from a kind of top-down perspective, in that there were all kinds of cross-cutting networks, some of which would be identified by Cold War categories, communist or non-communist, but others would be identified by relationships of kin, of family, um, uh, just a variety of social relationships that would link people um, back and forth in the war, and how complicated those kinds of cross-cutting relationships are. And he tells some very, very poignant individual stories, and I don't, I don't want to—they're they're, they're told so well that I don't, I don't want to take the surprise away from the readers. But collectively, using those stories to say. You know, we can talk about the Vietnam War as a kind of Cold War conflict or the Cold War as a kind of central event in at least the second half of the 20th century. But there's something fundamentally going on in Vietnam that the Cold War doesn't begin to explain. And again, that's the nature of in part decolonization, but what that means on the ground for the individual actors who are involved. Uh, Hanek, like a number of the contributors to the volume, these are in a way praises for books that are either just out or in the process of coming out. And Hanek has written two books, actually, in the last couple of years, both of which are dealing with the wartime period and memories of war, have won all kinds of distinguished prizes from the American Anthropological Association and from the Asian Studies Association. And so in that case, you know, readers who are curious to see more, there's much more to read. That's also true with uh, David Hunt, who has just a marvelous book that's come out from the University of Massachusetts Press, uh, I think, last spring. Again, mm -hmm. the essay in our volume is drawn from that. It's a book that, as Marilyn says, uses these round interviews but does it in just beautiful ways in creating, again, a sense of what the revolutionary world, especially for younger people, would have been in Vietnam, in the Mekong Delta, in the early part of the 1960s, and how, as the war changes and transforms over the course of the 1960s and the National Liberation Front does, 
their experiences and the sort of fundamental nature of what the insurgency means shifts as well. Um, Sophie is working on a book that doesn't go so much to uh, the issues that she's dealing with in the essay for our book, um, which again, as Marilyn says, are, are really fascinating. And one of the things that she talks about in our essay is that there are these power struggles within the northern regime, something that you know people just didn't think much about really before recently. Well, had and no that, way of thinking about either. Yeah, 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 that's right. And a sense that there were more moderate and more radical voices within the regime that often were vying against each other in making sort of critical policy decisions about the war. And she floats out there at the end of the essay, this isn't really the focus of the essay, but she kind of floats out the suggestion that from a Vietnamese or North Vietnamese policy elite standpoint, at every moment, the Americans made choices about the war that essentially empowered more radical hardline voices within the government. Yeah, so, where have we know, heard that before about the president? Yeah, yeah, but an interesting suggestion that, you know, the, the, the possibilities of pulling those sort of more moderate positions out may diminish some given American choices. Anyway, Sophie is working on a project right now that's looking at the South during the French War and the American War. There's a lot of interest in Vietnamese history right now, in particularly the complications of southern Vietnam after the August Revolution and into the French War period. And I think collectively that work um, is, is going to, again, fundamentally reshape some of how we've been thinking about the Vietnamese dimension of all this. What she's looking at now, which just in terms of something you can think about for a future broadcast, is whether or not there was ever such a thing as a third force. Third force the United right. States is always talking about how, you know, it's not that we're just against things. We're for a particular kind of reforming nationalism. So, uh, so not the authoritarian right, not the communist left, but something very comfortably and importantly in between, and somehow never be able to find it. Um, the, what Sophie is looking at is whether there was such a group within Vietnam in Vietnamese politics and society, and um, what happened to it, mm -hmm. uh, where it was in the 50s, you know, immediately after World War II, how it developed, where it went. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is going to be transformative of one's understanding of the history of Vietnam. Mm -hmm. I haven't... Um read any reviews of the book. I generally don't read reviews of books. At least I try not to. Um, but I can imagine um, someone like Michael Lind or Mark Moyer reviewing the book and asking why Michael Lind or Mark Moyer is not in the book. Um, these are people, for those of uh, our listeners who don't know, wrote a different sort of book uh, about uh, Vietnam. Um, can you speak to that issue at all? And I don't mean this as an aggressive question or anything. I just wonder about the composition of the of the um, uh, of the of, of the authors. Well, I, I mean, to yeah, depersonalize yeah. this for just a yeah, second. yeah, absolutely depersonalize it. I just mentioned those people because I, I I happen to know their names. Yeah, yeah. Let's take the names away. But I mean, the the revisionist position on Vietnam is relatively clear. You know, no matter who's articulating it, which is. Um, you know, a, a sort of three-part story, one of which is that it would have been possible had it not been for a recalcitrant Congress, had it not been for bungling presidents, had it not been for the anti-war movement, for the military to have won the war. Second, that there was a viable South Vietnamese state out there 
um, that in fact was deserving of American support. And finally, you know, that the war really was winnable, that there was a winnable strategy, and that, of course, is based on these other two assumptions. What we suggest in the introduction to the volume is that there's absolutely nothing in the essays that we present that give much credence to those fundamental ways of thinking about the war. It's very difficult to see the question of South Vietnam, you know, in these, in these very, I don't know, um, kind of black and white sorts of terms. Is it democracy? Isn't it democracy? Is it this? Is it that? You know, the South Vietnamese state is something of a mess, really, from, I would say, you know, the kind of colonial period onward. And there are all kinds of complications about why South Vietnam is a notoriously difficult place to govern. It turns out to be a notoriously difficult place for the North to govern after 1975. <laughs> um, there, but there are very, you know, particular historical reasons why in the period of the American War that making this case about viability is a somewhat fraught one. Um, and, you know, these questions about sort of winability and, you know, what could be done here and there, they always seem to me very, very sort of weakly argued. But, you know, the real kind of troubling thing about this is that I would say, with the revisionists aside, and there really aren't all that many of them, although they seem to have a disproportionately powerful voice within a kind of public media, that pretty much almost all of the major people who work on the Vietnam War simply don't see it that way, mm -hmm. and have written books that I think quite decisively suggest that those points of view really don't make sense. So now we find ourselves having to kind of refight some of these older battles that were, again, issues that were raised during the war itself, rather than getting on with the business of what would be more productive interventions in understanding the Vietnam period. But what I was really struck by is, you know, as the Afghanistan decisions have, you know, been front and center, how these revisionist points of view are often presented as real or having a kind of historical basis to them. There was a piece a couple of weeks ago in the Sunday New York Times, you know, op-ed thing, I think by Lewis Sorley, that presented a series of arguments about what was going on late in the war, as if these things really were the case, and that therefore they immediately suggested that X and Y should be done in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. I, it seems to me, there, again, the credibility by which those ideas are floated, despite the fact that there's very little... I think, historical basis to them, particularly if you're working through carefully Vietnamese sources, it's very, it's very disconcerting. So, you know, the book isn't designed in a way as a, you know, response or a challenge to revisionism. But I think it was a book where you're trying to look at where people are working at in the most interesting, productive, and rigorous ways with both American and Vietnamese and a variety of international sources. And, you know, the, the revisionist view doesn't usually go that way. Mm -hmm. You know, I Marilyn, think... go ahead. If, yeah, I, there's this... Um, uh, William Appleman Williams, Bruce Cummings, a whole bunch of us have been called by Orthodox historians revisionists. And <laughs> Bruce right. Cummings once said, uh, there's no such thing as revisionists. There are good historians and bad historians. <laughs> And I think that in the book, we have very good historians. There are other very good historians we could have had in the book. They would not include those whose, um, whose sole interest in the history of the United States and Vietnam is to argue that the war could have been won. This is not a very interesting question on either side. 
What's interesting is to figure out why the war, why the revolution, what happened in the war, what happened in the revolution, not to start out with the notion that that, uh, that the United States cannot lose wars because it's the United States and it's the good guy, and so how can the good guy lose? Not possible. Mm-hmm. And then you go about creating a history that is essentially stab in the back. I mean, you know, that old uh, interwar uh, German historiography about World War I. Um, you know, it's not who lost Vietnam, it's who won there mm-hmm. and the nature of the, uh, the American defeat. I believe it was George Will. I usually don't quote George Will, and it probably wasn't George Will, who said that the power of a myth uh, has nothing to do with its veracity. And uh, yeah. I, I think that's true in this case. It is amazing how these things hold on, though, um, how even after uh, careful historians such as yourself and the people in this volume have uh, dismissed and really destroyed a, a certain point of view that um, it seems to have a kind of I don't know, mental gravity or something. It's, it draws people to it. And, and it's it, it political. It's not, there's, nothing, it, there's, no, there's nothing of the intellect about it. It's a political position, and it's pushing for a political, particular political position at the moment. You know, the Times has been carrying this stuff about the battle of the books, you know. And so there's Sorley versus uh, Goldstein. Uh, Goldstein saying JFK wouldn't have done it. Uh, well, he may or may not have, and that may be a little to the side of the point. And sorely saying, we won, we won, except that then, you know, the United States was betrayed. This is not the most interesting way to make a decision of such importance as whether or not to dispatch troops to Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I, I think you're right. But I, I worked in journalism for a while, and, and one of the things that uh, I came away from that experience with was the notion that the best way to get printed and the best way – to get people to read your stuff is to say outrageous things. <laughs> and I think there are a lot of people that um, write uh, for places like the Times who know that very well uh, because you do find things that are uh, remarkably ill-considered. Um, but uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the, the war itself and, 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 and about what we, what we now know and what these essays tell us. One of the things that I, I find uh, always very interesting, uh, and this, this is something I think that um, – much neglected in the American understanding of Vietnam is the, uh, the, the pre-war, so the pre-American war part of the war. And uh, I was thinking particularly about uh, the first essay, uh, which concerns what is really an amazing paradox to me, and that is that Franklin Roosevelt um, re- really disliked uh, French colonialism quite a bit and, uh, and that Ho Chi Minh courted the Americans uh, in 1945. Uh, and so uh, given those two facts, you kind of wonder how we ended up where we were in 19... 19- 66. I, it, it's, it's, very, it's a very strange thing. So how did it all fall apart if Ho Chi Minh wanted to work with us and Roosevelt hated French colonialism? Yeah, well, this is the lead essay in the volume by a scholar, uh, Mark Lawrence, who's uh, an associate professor at the University of Texas, who wrote a really fascinating book a couple of years ago about this early period of the world, and not so much, Marsha, focused on the question that you're asking, but looking at the relationship between policymakers in France and Britain and the United States, and what he calls a kind of transnational conversation amongst these like-minded policy elites in an effort to pull the United States deeper into the French war. And what's important, I think, about Marx's work beyond the argument, which is important too, is that Marx was carefully working through both French language and British sources in 
trying to, again, open up our understanding of how that transformation might come in the American mind about who to support on the ground. The question about um, Ho and Roosevelt and, uh, you know, anti-colonialism is something that Mark also deals with nicely in that essay. And, you know, one of the arguments there is that America self-perceives as an anti-colonial power, but what the Americans define as anti-colonialism doesn't necessarily sort of map on to what actors in various parts of the Global South might see as anti-colonialism. Roosevelt isn't particularly keen on the French or on French colonialism, but it doesn't necessarily mean that Roosevelt and others are eager for a kind of immediate moment of decolonization in Vietnam. One of the things that Roosevelt floats for a long time during World War II is this idea of trusteeship, an idea that ultimately uh, doesn't come to much in the end, but had it, for instance, if you look carefully at what those trusteeship plans were, uh, the ways they get kind of fleshed out are that a period of as much as 25 or 30 years, the Roosevelt administration imagined, would be a necessary period of tutelage before the Vietnamese could run an independent state. Well, there's a kind of perceptual gap there. Ho Chi Minh has already proclaimed Vietnam independent of French colonial rule. There is a functioning post-colonial state in Vietnam. And yet the Americans are insisting that, again, there would be this very, very long period of tutelage, all of which suggests that, you know, the, the problem with the French was they didn't know how to do it well, not <laughs> that there wasn't the necessity for, again, tutelage in what we're seeing as superior Western or mm-hmm. American ideas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Marilyn, do you have something? Well, it's the, um, the the sad thing is that the Roosevelt's approach to trusteeship was a kind of later 20th century version of the mandate system of um, that followed World War One. That is, we keep forgetting the way in which in 1945, 1944-45, was still a world of empires and colonies. And the piece of the story that Mark mentioned before, but we haven't spent too much time on, is that. The, and he's mentioned again uh, just now, is the part that's about decolonization, not about the Cold War at all, but about the way in which, as a result of many, many factors, in the post-1945 period, European empires uh, were simply not what they once were. And uh, the move for independence and decolonization was growing in uh, all parts of the colonial world. And a big piece of the Vietnam story is there. So Roosevelt administration was certainly against colonies, but it also had an attitude towards uh, the colonized world that wasn't all that different from those of the European imperialists. That is to say, they need to, you know, they need tutelage, they need guidance, they need uh, care and nurturing. And Ho Chi Minh said, well, why can't you do for us what you did for the Philippines? Ah, the response to that was, well, you know, the United States has been tutoring the Philippines since the 1890s. Mm-hmm. Um, not so fast, Mr. Ho Chi Minh. So the, the notion that they couldn't do it by themselves, that they needed to be guided, and that among the guiders, those giving guidance, would be the original colonial powers, was, was um, I think, quite strong. And then, and then Roosevelt died. I mean, he had no love for the goal at all. In fact, he couldn't stand it. Uh, and his distaste for the French and for French colonialism and for de Gaulle, for a small little moment in time, looked like it might redound to the benefit of the Vietnamese. 
But then very early on, as early as 1948, you have Atchison saying, okay, find out who this Ho Chi Minh is. And the answer comes back that, well, he's been a member of the Comintern and so on and so forth, but he's very, very popular. And Atchison's response is he's a communist. Ergo, he cannot be a nationalist Mm -hmm. because he's simply part of the Soviet system. Mm -hmm. I mean, that kind of thing kicks in. And I think, you know, what gets layered into that, and and Mark's essay is good on this, and in fact, I think the next essay in the volume, um, you know, Seth's essay on Laos is is very Mm -hmm. strong with this too, is where racial perceptions are. Yes. Right. Yeah, I was, I was actually going to, that's a, no. nice, it's a nice segue because uh, I should say uh, the, the next essay is about, uh, it's about Laos really and, and, and it opens with um, what journalists would call a good fact and that is that in the briefing uh, that uh, the Eisenhower administration gave the Kennedy administration, um, Vietnam was mentioned in passing and Laos was the topic that they were very interested in <laughs> um, that, and that really did, op- I was, I, in fact, I shared that with my wife who Quite honestly, didn't care. She's a mathematician, but um, I, I did find that really eye-opening that Laos was so important. Maybe you could talk just a little bit about that, and then about these racial perceptions, because he has some really, again, eye-opening quotes in there about what the Americans thought about the Laotians. Yeah, well, I mean, to, to, to take the racial thing back to the um, narrative that, that Marilyn was drawing with with Roosevelt and, and Truman and trusteeship. I mean, what the, the decision that Ho Chi Minh is a communist is also mapped onto a general sense that the Vietnamese are not as apt as we might be about self-government or about taking care of their own affairs. Um, and so the, the sense is that they would need external people to help them. So the, with that sort of racial prism in mind, then when you've decided that Ho Chi Minh is a communist on top of that, then you immediately assume that he has to be manipulated by some outside party, whether it's Moscow or Beijing. So it seems to me that the racial notions of this and the kind of ideological Cold War notions of this get wrapped up together in making you know, those choices about him um, in, in the late 1940s. It also should be said that you know, Ho Chi Minh is a kind of in-between figure for American policymakers. When they're, they're issuing these sort of blanket denunciations of the Vietnamese capacities, or later, as Seth talks about, Lao capacities, they're, they're very generalized. And so with Ho Chi Minh, they get pushed a little bit. I mean, those who come to know him, they're American OSS officers on the ground in northern Vietnam in 1945, you know, have met him, like him, see him, obviously, as, as capable in one form or another. Um, but it's interesting to see their own dispatches back to Washington, which you point to him as a kind of anomaly and that the larger forces around him, again, map onto these um, larger sort of racialized perceptions of the Vietnamese. But anyway, when you get to Laos, I mean, one of the things that Seth is trying to say is that even within this kind of hierarchy of, um, or even within these racialized perceptions, there, there is a kind of hierarchy. So um, by comparison to the Vietnamese, the Laos seem even more lacking in the ability to put together some sort of state. And, you know, this this notion of kind of ranking the races, again, is nothing new. I mean, if you go back to some of the World's Fairs and international expositions at the turn of the 20th century, they were manifested in things as gross as the race of races. You know, you would run people around a track from a variety of countries to predict sort of, you know, where it would be that different races would, would exhibit 
certain capabilities. I mean, this notion, again, of a kind of racial hierarchy, whether it's biological, whether it's climatic, whether it's cultural, whatever it is, is a longstanding sort of thing that's getting employed in, in the Lao case. What I think is really interesting about Seth's essay, and you know, he would have had no way of knowing this when, when he was writing it, is the way it seems to map on to some of what the conversation that's going on today about Afghanistan and Pakistan. You know, is Afghanistan Laos and Vietnam Pakistan? Mm -hmm. And if so, you know, are there even longer histories of, again, this sense of making civilizational differentiations between various states and people? Um, and, you know, there's, a, there's another argument around all these things that isn't it's inflected by race, but not solely driven by race, and that's about, you know, technology and sort of high modernist perspectives on the world and people's sort of levels of development. This is going on in intensive ways during the early Cold War period in Vietnam and Laos and other places as well. But the degree to which that continues to inflect, you know, how a kind of hierarchy of significance is seen between Afghanistan and, uh, and Pakistan. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, let's move on to the next two essays, which I found very interesting. Both of them have to do with the uh, decision by the Americans, that is in the Kennedy administration and in the Johnson administration, to actually deploy uh, first advisors and then troops. What do these two essays tell us that we didn't um, already know? Wait, wait, I'm sorry, which essays are we talking about? This is about? the Porter essay and the uh, Lagaval essay. The one is, a, oh, yeah. right. one is about the National well, Security Administration and then the, uh, the, the right. second one is about Johnson. Yeah, well, Porter has been arguing, uh, he, he does two things in his book, The Perils of Dominance. First of all, he makes clear just how dominant the United States was. So this notion that American policy was always reactive to the Soviet Union is just nonsense. Uh, American uh, military dominance was assured and it was known to be so at the time. And there's uh, just a side note on that. There's um, one of the big issues in the Kennedy election was whether or not there was a missile gap. And it's interesting that Kennedy comes to power uh, on the back of uh, an insistence that he will do national security better than Eisenhower had done and that this missile gap showed a tremendous inattention on the part of the, um, of the Eisenhower administration to the safety of the country. And as was known at the time, and as the Kennedy knew at the time, there was no missile gap. And so Gary talks about, Gareth talks about that, and he, he argues as well that in the case of both Johnson and Kennedy, it was particular ideologues within the national security bureaucracy, um, Bundy, McNamara, people like that, who pushed each president towards a commitment to war. Um, and uh, in all of these discussions, you have presidents expressing doubts, hesitancies, should we really do this? And the combination of uh, military civilian civilians in the Pentagon, um, the civilian bureaucracy in the Pentagon, as well as uh, in, uh, the National Security Advisor and the National Security Council pushing for a troop commitment. And sometimes the argument for the use of troops uh, goes something like uh, this. Well, it may not work, but we will have been seen to have tried. Mm -hmm. It's as if lives were not involved, as if this is all like pieces on a chessboard. Let's try moving the pawn here. It may not work, but on the other hand, it will show that we're in the game. 
Um, and, and Porter argues this for Johnson as well. Um, Longeval, on the other hand, says that uh, Kennedy resisted uh, such advice and that um, and leans towards, although he doesn't make this the heart of his scholarship by any means, leans towards that view which says that um, had Kennedy lived, he would have acted to withdraw such troops as they were and certainly not to escalate. Um, and then he lays heavy duty blame on Johnson uh, and that this was indeed Johnson's war. And um, Johnson, for a wide variety of reasons, just um, took the advice of the military, ignored and shunned all contrary opinion, which was available to him, but he, he ignored it and went in with uh, literally guns blazing. Is that a fair summary, Mark, do you think? Yeah, no, I think that is, Marilyn. I think, you know, the other thing that that's, um, both do, but I think, you know, Fred does in especially interesting ways, comes back to the sort of earlier question that Marshall was asking about uh, containment in the Cold War and whether that's sufficient or insufficient in thinking about Vietnam. And in the the piece in, in our book comes, again, from a, a book uh, that's been out uh, for a little while, uh, Choosing War, that, that Fred wrote. And... Um, you know, in addition to the issues that Marilyn is raising, I think the thing that he does that, that I'm always intrigued by is in kind of recreating a kind of wider decision-making climate in 63, 64, 65, but particularly 64, 65, in which Fred at least argues that it was a much more permissive climate than we've thought to make a decision to move out of Vietnam rather than deeper in. And he quite carefully traces out uh, in the essay in our book that, you know, if you're talking to the major European allies, there's no pressure there to be coming deeper in. Um, if you look at public opinion polling in the United States in that period of time, it's very fluid. There's no consensus for either escalation or withdrawal. If you start looking at leaders in Congress, which obviously was something that Johnson knew very well, uh, there, too, there's a kind of ambiguity, a sense of not knowing how to move forward, at least. So Fred essentially suggesting that the larger climate was much more permissive. There was no Cold War imperative that was operating in 64, 65, as it might have operated if it did at all in the 1950s. And that then that makes it even more complicated to understand Johnson's choice. It isn't the inevitable push of containment since 1950, but that something very particular is happening. And he argues within Johnson himself in 64-65. But rather than worrying about the sort of culpability as it advises as with Johnson, it's just I'm fascinated by the notion that by 65, there was, in a larger sense, a much more potentially permissive climate about how to make decisions on Cold War issues. No, I, I have always been fascinated by Lyndon Baines Johnson. Um, I interviewed somebody, I guess it was last week, uh, about Johnson's relationship with Kennedy. And, and Johnson is uh, well, he's one of the most insecure people I, I've ever read about. He, he was constantly looking for approval from people. So it doesn't um, surprise me at all that uh, he would uh, surround himself with a coterie of uh, military advisors who um, told him what he wanted to hear and then followed their advice. Uh, let me um, uh, move on to the next uh, section uh, of the book, which contains a number of essays about uh, Vietnamese affairs by scholars who uh, have Vietnamese and also uh, study them. One of them uh, 
The, the essay that I'd like to talk about, I skip a couple, is, is David Hunt's. We've talked about it before, but uh, what, one of the things that was interesting to me is that the essay is based on these um, Rand interviews of, uh, I guess they are um, defectors from... No, they're also prisoners. It's prisoners? Yeah. Oh, okay. So in any event, what I was going to mention is, is that, I don't know if you know this, but the uh, United States Air Force in 19, I guess it was the late 1940s and 1950s, had a similar sort of project with uh, Soviet defectors. It was called, I, I think, it, 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 and, I, and I've actually seen it, and it's thousands of interviews with uh, Soviet citizens who had defected and uh, a really a, a kind of a full-court press social scientific effort to understand the Soviet system on the basis of their testimony. And it's a, it's a really fascinating and has been used now quite a bit uh, by uh, Soviet historians to try to understand both the American perspective on the Soviet Union and what the Soviet Union was really like. Maybe you could talk just a little bit about this RAND project and how David uses the, uh, the, uh, the interviews. Well, the RAND project starts quite early, and, it's, and there are different elements to it, but the, the heart of it, as I understand it, or the part that I think interested David and interests me, is the morale and motivation. I mean, the question that kept troubling the United States as it was put quite directly and crudely was why do their Vietnamese, and who the they are is rather obscure, why do their Vietnamese fight better than our Vietnamese? And one way to do it is to question their Vietnamese as they are captured or are persuaded to surrender. Um, David is very alert to the dangers of the use of this material because obviously if you have just surrendered, the desire to tell the people you've, to whom you've surrendered what they would like to hear so that they would be terribly nice to you. Uh, that pressure is great, and the same thing is true for a prison. could be true for a prisoner of war. But he's completely alert to that, and he reads um, these, uh, these testimonies with great care and with the skill in some ways of a literary uh, uh, critic, mm -hmm. really trying to get at the truth, that the kernels of truth, and the truths, plural, that they contain. And he um, presents us then with a complicated village uh, vision, um, understanding of life in various villages, of the motivation and um, of, of the actors uh, on the Vietnamese, on the NLF side, um, that in, enriches your understanding both of how people move towards uh, revolution and resistance and when they give up and why they give up. And he talks about it in terms, too, of the um, project of Vietnamese peasants or of the peasants who anyhow joined the movement of becoming modern. That it's wrong to think of, and it's sometimes been presented, the American effort in Saigon as part of the overall effort at modernization that the United States was engaged in in various places in the third world uh, under the influence of uh, Rostow and other theorists of modernization. But there was on the side of the opposition to the United States uh, not a clinging to traditional ways at all, but a different vision and version of how to be modern. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I, th I thought that was, that was very interesting. Are other historians using these uh, Rand interviews? Or does he have a lock on them? <laughs> Oh, no, people have been using them for a while. I mean, David Elliott was among those who, in life, uh, yeah. did the interviews. And right. in David's huge two-volume work on one province, the revolution in one province, uh, he relies heavily mm -hmm. on it. Ron Robin, in his account of the 
Cold War uh, use them as well. Some of the round reports, particularly those made uh, quite late in the war. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, it, it's, it's very interesting to me that we have this uh, think tank complex in the United States and we invest a lot of money in, uh, in investigating and analyzing um, the people against whom and with whom we'll be fighting. Uh, but I do wonder whether actually we learn very much of anything. I, it, it would seem to me that uh, the, There's a great deal that can be learned. What people learn has to do with the policy they anyhow want to pursue. Yeah, no, I think at that's one, exactly right. Yeah. You know, at one point, Nathan Lighties is responsible for a report of such brutality, it stuns to read, in which he says, look, uh, the NLF and, uh, and Hanoi, they got a rap on these people. Um, so forget about trying to persuade them. Forget about trying to protect them. Forget all of that counterinsurgency babble. What you've got to do is make them very, very afraid. And when you have sufficiently intimidated them, they will come to the American side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I have a friend who's a lawyer, he's been a lawyer forever, and uh, he explained to me once that uh, pretty much <laughs> he was also quite a cynic, I would say. He would say that most of the judges that he stood before had made up their mind about the case before he said a word. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's similar with these. Uh, these, uh, that's these why the jury system matters, you see. Yeah, no, I think that they... And that's uh, why elections matter, think, for the same reason. But I, I think, you know, what David does with these, you know, just to sort of reinforce what Marilyn was saying, is that it, his reading of them is just amazingly rich and sophisticated. And I, I think that comes in no small measure from his training as a French historian and the kinds of sort of micro-historical issues that he's been interested in there and bringing that critical sensibility to bear on these sources. And what's most striking to them about, for me, is that you see in the Mekong Delta what David calls people on the move, and particularly for younger people moving back and forth between the countryside where they may have been born and the city, occupying perhaps sort of marginal spaces within urban areas, moving then perhaps to urban areas in provincial capitals as well. But the whole notion of, you know, sort of peasants in villages and urban people, you know, in the cities and refugees, which I think are the kind of categories that people have thought about, um, you know, the southern Vietnamese population. This opens up a whole different way of thinking about where an awful lot of people were moving to and from in Again, making sense of the world around them in the 1960s. I also think, you know, from David's the, the sort of larger book that this essay emerges out of, and also David Elliott's work on the NLF, that we increasingly have a much richer picture of the complexities of what the NLF was all about. There was, you know, a, a kind of um, monochromatic way of thinking about the NLF during the wartime period. They were either you know, revolutionary heroes, or they were, you know, dupes of the communist north. And again, being able to think about the NLF in in more fluid ways, in more historically grounded ways, I think is is a strength of the essays that emerge in the volume, but also a strength of where some of the new world war is going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to talk about a couple of the essays in the third part, which is about the uh, end of the war, really, uh, the war um, after the Tet Offensive when it was winding down in the um, Paris peace talks and thus and such. I um, I, I thought that uh, the uh, the essay uh, about uh, what um, Nixon and Kissinger intended uh, w- when they uh, initiated and brought to fruition, if that's the right word, the Paris um, peace talks uh, w- was fascinating. 
Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. And, and the thing that really caught my attention was the fact that they really were dealing with, possibly dealing with the, the situation very cynically. Yeah, it's depressing reading, don't you think? Yeah, I, I, yes, it really was. Because I, I thought that, you know, again, I was alive at the time and I was a little kid, but I remember thinking, oh, good God, we're bringing peace to the Vietnamese. This is going to be great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the overall statement about Nixon is that he brought neither peace nor honor in his presidency um, uh, in terms of, of Vietnam. What's, what's, to me, striking is the... Um, that comes out of all of the discussions of the peace talks is that the terms on which the United States made peace had been available uh, for the decade preceding. Truly available. Mm -hmm. Could have happened any time. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And that's what I find so so sort of dreadful about the whole end game story. Mm -hmm. do, we, do we know the answer to the question as to whether uh, Nixon and Kissinger thought that uh that really the, the, the game was up for South Vietnam and the notion was that we should really um, leave as soon as possible, declare victory and leave, I think is something that a diplomat I, told me once. And, and then they sort of knew that South Vietnamese would fall shortly there. The South I Vietnam don't think Nixon expected to lose the presidency. Uh -huh. I'm quite sure he didn't. And I suspect, strongly suspect, that um, looking at what would have been called the violations of the Paris Peace Accords by Hanoi, although, of course, they were being violated by both sides from the get-go. From the moment they were agreed to, they, the violations began on both mm -hmm. sides. That Nixon, in uh, safely, securely in office, would have worked uh, very hard to prevent congressional decision not to fund uh, ongoing air operations mm -hmm. um, in, in Vietnam. But I think there was no possibility of reintroducing troops. Mm -hmm. The great thing about air war is that you can call a halt to it, a pause. You can up the ante. You can um, stop. Mm -hmm. uh, it's much more difficult when you've committed troops. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. And the troops out left uh, Nixon with many, many options. Mm -hmm. I, I thought one I of the, the other. Go ahead, the other thing. The other thing to be said about these sort of two essays at the end is that although they go to some of these sort of more classic issues about Nixon and Kissinger intentionality at the end of the war, they also for the first time introduced um, some new actors into the discussion. And in yes, right. Nguyen's case, it is thinking about uh, North Vietnamese and South Vietnamese policy toward the end of the war. She's one of the first people to get really quite remarkable access in Vietnam to begin to unpack how that was seen. And in Michael Allen's essay, to kind of rethink the whole POW-MIA issue and to suggest that the, the POW-MIA sort of lobby itself, the actors that constituted that lobby, have a real power. You know, the, the, the notion that simply this is a kind of created thing by the Nixon administration that allows them to perpetuate the war, whether or not there's some of that going on may well be true. But the notion that there is a very real force within American society that emerges around POW MIAs and the tremendous power that they would really have um, to keep hostage American policy toward Vietnam in the post-war period. Again, Michael sort of lifting up a dimension of that story that, that simply hasn't been told before. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I think that's right. I found that uh, essay really uh, quite revealing. I, I, I understood that the Nixon administration had used the POW issue 
for various reasons, but I didn't know that the um, that both the North Vietnamese and these various peace groups in the United States were also, in in a certain sense, using the POWs. So that they right. were they were, and, and really that was a it was quite eye opening for me. I, I didn't know somehow that 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 was taking place. I, I didn't know that the North Vietnamese would release prisoners to peace groups. Uh, that right. that was uh, not something that I was aware of growing up in Kansas in the 60s. Um, the other thing is, is that I think I told Mark about this, but I was one of those people that wore the bracelets. You remember the bracelets? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Everybody in my neighborhood had the bracelet. Well, my uncle was there. So uh, huh? I don't know if the, if the listeners to this show remember well, this. Well, let me, let me put in a pitch for Mike. Michael's book, of which this essay is a part, just came out from UNC Press this fall. It's called Until the Last Man Comes Home, and it's a terrific book. And he, he's got a section that, that talks about the bracelets in very interesting ways, so you might want to pick it up, Marshall. Yeah, no, I absolutely will. I mean, today people run around with those yellow bracelets about cancer, but in my day, everybody, at least in, in this was in, in Kansas, and Wichita is a, um, was, was really quite, kind of a military town in the sense that McConnell Air Force Base was there, and also there are aircraft factories all around it, and there are lots of um, there are a lot of a lot of veterans and a lot of um, airmen there, but we all had these... Um, these bracelets with the names of POWs on them that we wore, mm-hmm. uh, and it was uh, – and I don't think I have those bracelets anymore. People wore those late into the 70s. I, I do remember right. that pretty, pretty – Well, the, the POW MIA flag still flies. Yeah, no, it really does. It flags all over the, all over the place, and um, we have a very rich uh, – what I guess I would call a biker culture here in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Uh, people write to, like to ride motorcycles, and uh, that, that POW MIA flag is very often found. Um, on the um, leather vest that they often wear, as a kind, yeah. of, as a kind of a strange point of, of pride. I, you know, I hadn't really ever thought about it as a cultural phenomenon that I had participated in myself. I didn't really understand these bracelets when I had them. Yeah. I didn't know what they meant. You, you really should read Michael's new book because what it does is to very much uh, complicate one's understanding of what the bracelets, what the uh, recovery of the body of the. Uh, no longer unknown soldier. All, what all of that is about, mm-hmm. and it's a, it's a, an account. Nobody has done this before. There, there has there's a very good and very political book about the prisoners of uh, MIA POWs by Bruce Franklin, uh, which I still think is is excellent. But it leaves out a very large part of the story, and it's that that Michael Allen has engaged. Yeah, one one of the things that, that was shocking to me, and I don't want this to be taken the wrong way, is how few of them there were. Uh, that, that really, we, if, if I remember the statistics correctly, that we're not talking well, – it's, like I mean, a, it's a thousand the people over the entire war. This is, this is one of the great sort of puzzles in some ways of POW-MIA politics, and I think, you know, as critical as people are explaining the kind of post-1975 wars for Vietnam, there are far fewer POW-MIAs from the Vietnam War than there are certainly from World War II or the Korean well, War. Korea. And, yeah. oh, it's it's and a yet, fraction of Koreas. And yet they become so central, you know, in, in, in so many ways in political and cultural discourse. And I mean, in part, that's what Michael's book is about explaining. But I think in, in a larger sense, and you know, we don't really do the kind of post-45 period so much in the book, but that, that becomes a kind of central issue for understanding, again, the kind of amazing, please, a prominent place the war has occupied in a variety of people's memories after mm-hmm. after 1975. Yeah, I sort of wonder if we're not trying to, at least, I, I don't know who we is here, but if a certain sector of the American electorate is not trying to snatch uh, victory from the jaws of defeat by um, proclaiming that we would not leave a man behind, that this would bring us honor in some way. I, I don't know, that's just a speculation on my part, but you're absolutely right about 
the number of uh, POWs, it was I, – I really had to read that passage twice because it was under 1,000 for the whole war. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and in Korea, it was many, many more times that. And in World War II, I know as a Russian historian, uh, 1,000 prisoners of war is uh, not even a drop in a bucket um, because the, the Nazis would take um, – hundreds of thousands of prisoners commonly right. and then starve them to death. So, uh, which isn't to minimize, of course, the, um, the suffering of American POWs. Well, I mean, the other thing that has to get figured into this is the numbers of Vietnamese on all sides missing as a result of the yeah. war is far, far larger. And yeah. yet uh, the intensification of efforts has been much greater on the American yeah. side than the Disney side for a variety of reasons. Yeah, no, that's right. What is, let me ask you just one question about the final essay by David Elliott. What is wild history? What you find in the streets, <laughs> in the fields. <laughs> well, David, you know, has this wonderful notion of again a kind of alternative form of history done in Vietnam. You know, for for sort of hundreds and hundreds of years, which in some ways I think we would call a kind of history from below rather than history from above, but one that's sensitive to again sort of paradox, complexity. Um, surprising kinds of um, people or issues or sort of objects of study. It just suggests, again, we thought, uh, as a nice way to close the volume, that, again, it's it's a very complex war that one can read at local, national, and you know, sort of regional and global perspectives, and that there might be something of that old sensibility of wild history that the Vietnamese, you know, were doing in the 18th and 19th centuries. That, that's a nice metaphor, at least, to bring to bear against what the authors are doing in the book, but also where we see, you know, much of the leading scholarship going, um, coming out of the book. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the things that I took away from the book, and uh, I say this in the write-up on the blog, is that it does a really terrific job of humbling us as historians and also as political actors concerning what we think we know. Because, um, you know, the book has a kind of Rashomon effect. Uh, There are many different sides to this, and there are so many sides to it that it really defeats any attempt to reduce its complexity. It's it's really, you know... I'm delighted. If that's what we did... That is a great achievement. Well, you did. You really, I think you really did because, I, I, you know, I, there are no simple answers here. I mean, again, it, it, it reminds me of – I talk about this a little bit too. I, I don't know if anybody remembers this, but Tolstoy, you know, he, he delves a little bit into the philosophy of history at the end of War and Peace. And, and basically what he says is nobody has any idea what's going on. I mean, you, you think you do, but you really don't because things are just much too complicated. And, mm-hmm. and that's really the sense I got from reading the book. That, And again, there's a lesson here. I mean, we think we know what's going on in Iraq and Afghanistan. But we don't. <laughs> we really don't. I'm because, quite because, sure I don't. Because we can't. It's just too complicated to understand um, what exactly is happening in any of these places. I mean, I can barely understand, uh, you know, what's going on in my own household. In fact, I'm sure I don't understand what's going on in my own household. <laughs> anyway, I should tell well, you. Listen, you know, <laughs> go ahead. Along those lines, I just, you know, if listeners do happen to pick up a copy of the book, I, I think both Marilyn and I would hope that they paid special attention to the photograph that's on uh, yeah. the front cover, which initially one might say, oh, you know, that looks like um, another Vietnam War photo. But in fact, is a, is a photograph by a Vietnamese-American photographer, An Mi Le, um, who was out 
photographing um, people who reenact the Vietnam War out in the kind of scrub hills of, of Virginia. And she herself, in fact, was drawn into these reenactments. But there's, a, there's just a, an interesting uh, juxtaposition in thinking about what are they doing in the middle of Virginia reenacting a war um, that, that, again, didn't, you know, it, I, maybe you reenact a war you won, but it, it, it's, it's odder somehow to be reenacting one that you lost, unless, of course, you don't believe that you lost. Yeah, no, I, you know, I, again, I've, I've, um, I've known some reenactors, and it's, uh, I don't think they really think about it on that level. I, I think they're just fascinated by, by the war itself. But I will say about that picture on the cover, when I first got the book in the mail, I looked at that picture, and, um, and I said, there's something wrong with this picture. I mean, I, I, I didn't know what it was, and I'd been, I, I, I teach a military history class, and I said, you know, there's just something wrong with this picture. It doesn't make any sense at all. That's an A6 intruder. They flew off carriers. That's a pine scrub forest. These guys are dressed <laughs> like rangers. There's a guy hanging out of the cockpit, but that doesn't make any sense. Um, and then I read in the book that it's these reenactors. So I was kind of proud of myself that I, that I caught that. <laughs> I, and I told my wife, I said, there's just something wrong with this picture. I don't understand this picture. So, <laughs> so anyway, I should tell – we've taken up a lot of your time, and I really appreciate it. I should tell our listeners that um, we uh, have been talking to Mark Bradley and Marilyn Young. And let me um, ask our, our final – our sort of traditional final questions on New Book and History. Um, Mark, what are you working on now first? And then I'll ask you, Marilyn. Um, I am trying to finish up a book that looks at um, the emergence of global human rights politics after 1945 and that also thinks a little bit about the complicated place of the United States, both state and non-state actors in them. Mm -hmm. And Marilyn, what are you working on? Well, I'm working on a project that has the temporary title Necessary Wars of Choice, and it looks at all of America's post-war wars from 1945 to the present. That's a great title. That's a really a, the, the title should sell the book. I think. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> so if there are any agents out there, you should call Marilyn immediately and sign her up for that. But anyway, uh, again, we've been talking to um, Mark Bradley and Marilyn Young. We've been talking about uh, their new edited book, Making Sense of the Vietnam Wars, Local, National, and Transnational Perspectives. I really urge you to go out and buy it. I found it uh, absolutely uh, fascinating, and I'm sure that you will as well. Um, Mark and Marilyn, thanks very much for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks right. for having us. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. 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 You've been listening to an interview with Mark Bradley and Marilyn Young about their book, Making Sense of the Vietnam Wars, Local, National, and Transnational Perspectives. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History.